Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm joined, as always, by Kevin, who is Skyping in for this conversation, but also we have with us a guest today, and I'm very excited to welcome Father Dominic Legg. Father Legg is the director of the Thomistic Institute and an assistant professor in systematic theology at the, at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. He holds a Juris Doctor from Yale Law School, a philosophy licentiate from the School of Philosophy of the Catholic University of America, and a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of Fribourg. He entered the Order of Preachers in 2001 and was ordained a priest in 2007. But this is very interesting. He actually practiced law for several years as a trial attorney for the U.S. Department of Justice before becoming a Dominican. So I'd, I'd love to hear more about that maybe another day, Father, but um, welcome to Creedal Catholic. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I'd, I'd really love to pick your brain a little bit. I know you teach a course on Eucharistic theology, so I want to get to a lot of questions I have about Eucharistic theology and how Catholics can understand the church's teaching better and also respond to objections to that. But maybe before we do that, since you are the director of the Thomistic Institute, an organization that's doing really good work, could you tell our listeners a little bit about what the Thomistic Institute is doing and how to get more involved in, um, in what the programs are that you're running? Yeah, absolutely. The Thomistic Institute is a part of the a pontifical faculty at the Dominican House of Studies. So we're a graduate school of theology and also a, a seminary, and we have uh, both seminarians and uh, lay students here doing uh, work in, you know, an MA, a, a licentiate in, in theology. Uh, we have a doctorate in theology. And uh, so I'm a professor on the faculty here. And the Thomistic Institute was originally founded to be a kind of research institute to engage uh, contemporary questions from the perspective of St. Thomas Aquinas and the Thomistic tradition. But after we started organizing academic conferences and things like that, we began to discover that there was a real interest in Aquinas on coming from many other quarters, um, much more than, you know, we could satisfy just by having people come to conferences that we organized here in Washington, D.C. And we started a program for campus chapters uh, basically student groups on mainly secular uh, university campuses who organize themselves as a recognized group on their campus. And then uh, we help them bring top-notch Catholic intellectuals to their campus to speak on themes, uh, you know, kind of the typical themes that we at the Thomistic Institute would want to engage. So things ranging from uh, going deeper in the thought of Thomas Aquinas to the engagement of faith and reason, faith and science. A lot of questions about, uh, like, does contemporary neuroscience show that you don't have a soul or something like that? Uh, questions about the existence of God, the search for happiness, uh, friendship, uh, love, uh, and then lots of things that, you know, move into other domains that might be uh, things that emerge in, in literature or, uh, or even in in political theory or, or economics. So that's been a wonderful expansion of our work and now is really the bulk of what the Thomistic Institute does. So we're president at about uh, 45 different university campuses and we're putting on something like uh, 300 events around the country every year. 
So, you know, I'd encourage your listeners to check out our, our webpage or join our mailing list and then come to some of our events if there's events uh, at a school near you. Uh, but the most exciting thing that we've been doing lately, the new thing that we're doing, uh, is a program called Aquinas 101, which is a, a way to introduce people to the thought of Thomas Aquinas if they've never really studied him before. And we're doing that through a series of uh, video courses. So these are uh, a series of YouTube videos, generally pretty short, you know, three to five minutes. Uh, there's some animation. They're pretty lively. And uh, we put out two videos a week. And so with each video, if you sign up for the course, you get a little course reading, a little excerpt from Aquinas usually. There's typically also a podcast episode associated with the video. So if you want to go deeper on a particular theme, you can do that. And, um, uh, you know, it's all completely free. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to have some of your listeners sign up by just going to Aquinas101.com. That's the, that's the easiest way. Great. Thanks, Father. And you mentioned the Thomistic Institute website. For our listeners, that's Thomistic Institute. Dot org and exactly and this is just fantastic work that's happening on university campuses having taught at a large public university i can say that it's it's very hard for christian ideas and catholic ideas to be accepted let alone proliferated and taught and so this is a really valuable thing to reach hungry students with these ideas that hold much more promise than so many of the empty ideas that circulate on campuses today and uh, so, Father, you, you mentioned in some detail the Aquinas 101 course, which, you know, Zach and I are both uh, enrolled in and are enjoying. And it's really phenomenal uh, for our listeners. I want to say it's uh, Father Dominic's being a bit humble. The, the videos are really fantastic. Um, and it's, it's not just, you know, some nice animation. They, they're very, very well done videos with a lot of depth. Uh, your readings, you have us reading everything from uh, Aquinas himself and to Aristotle. So there's great exposure. And, you know, as a philosophy undergrad, uh, I've really enjoyed the engagement, but you also don't have to uh, kind of have that philosophy background. So I encourage, you know, anyone who has any interest in it to uh, go out. It's all very accessible. And I would also mention, uh, I'll kind of do the the plug here is, you know, uh, Father Dominic mentioned it's completely free, but uh, the the content is of such a high quality it's not exactly cheap to to make or or to reach that many people so i would definitely encourage if you do uh, get on there and see it and enjoy it and find some value in it and want to uh, continue that exposure to other people maybe consider donating i know uh, on the website it's, it's pretty easy uh, and you know it's, it's a great way to, to give back and it's been a, a pleasure to be a part of that course so i would encourage everyone to to get involved and, and maybe to give back as well. Well, thanks, Kevin, for those very kind words. Well, thank you, Father, and thank you, Kevin, for that addition. I would like to talk about the Eucharist now uh, because this is why I asked you to come on, Father Leg. I've got lots of things that I want to talk about, and I'm going to give away the game a little bit to our listeners, maybe peek behind the curtain. I was emailing with you, Father Leg, about this conversation, and I sent you a list of some very specific questions on how Catholics can respond to some some of the more serious objections to the Catholic dogma of the Eucharist. And when I say serious, I'm not saying that they're true or that they, they might be true. What I'm really saying is that these are serious objections that need serious responses in the same way that the problem of evil is a serious objection to the existence of God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't exist, but it does mean that we need to think deeply and think seriously about how we respond to the problem of evil. So there are, I think, some serious objections to the Catholic dogma of the Eucharist, 
And I think we need to give serious responses to those. So I, I sent you a list of some questions that I was thinking about. And uh, and you responded with um, basically, a, you know, these are good questions, but we need to step back and, and look at this through a wider lens and make sure we don't miss the forest through the trees. And I think that's, that's a very good point, Father, and um, well taken. So I would like to to throw this back to you then, let's step back a little bit and let's talk about why the centrality of the Eucharist or why the Eucharist is so central to our faith and what it means. Let's let's go to the Gospels when Jesus says, this is my body at the Last Supper. That's, that's the starting point for our understanding of this. So what's the significance of that and how does that inform everything else we believe about the Eucharist? Yeah, well, that's a great starting point. I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with that starting point. Uh, I mean, what I think, um, you know, the maybe the best way to to start here, you could you could spend. I mean, we could spend a month talking about, in a certain way, the the meaning of the Eucharist, or um, you know, the the way that it has uh, been, you know, sort of intertwined very very profoundly with a Catholic understanding of of the Christian life. Um, or I might just say more generally the, the Christian understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Um, but, uh, you know, to understand that the reformers, the Protestant reformers are reacting at a very specific time, point in time against a, at that point, 1600 year or, you know, 1500 year tradition of Christian practice and sort of continuous Christian witness to the Eucharist, so they're they're throwing objections up uh, with respect to a a major dimension of the Christian life, and uh, their objections are, you know, at least the objections that um, I think we'll be looking at a little later are fairly narrow uh, points. But really, I think in a certain way they they may be missing the very big truth that should be at the center of any discussion of the of the Eucharist, which is Jesus on the night before he died took bread and wine and with the apostles said, this is my body, which is given for you. And this is the chalice or the cup of my blood, which is given for you or poured out for you. And then do this in memory of me. And that the apostles uh, from that point forward began to understand what Jesus had done more and more profoundly and understood his words to be true when he says them. This is my body. This is my blood. And so from the very earliest witnesses that we have, even in the New Testament itself, uh, you know, so going back to the, the most primitive, uh, the most primitive accounts of what Christians believed, there is a very, uh, you might say, overwhelming unanimity of what, what we could call a kind of very strong Eucharistic realism about the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. And so the Catholic development of doctrine in, you know, which works out in some, some detail, what is happening when the priest at Mass repeats the words of Jesus uh, and how to understand sacrifice incrementally and metaphysically what's going on there, uh, that's in a way just trying to work out a way of giving full value to the very witness of Christ himself. I think that's a great point, Father. And one thing that makes me think about is how when you read, for example, St. Thomas Aquinas, so much of the time when he is talking about 
why we should think the way we do, he's going back to the words of scripture and he's taking it very, very literally. So, you know, thus, thus said Christ or uh, thus wrote the apostle. And I think the great irony is that you know, some people accuse Catholics of not taking the Bible seriously enough. But when you look at the writings of the church fathers, and in this example, Thomas Aquinas, we take the words of scripture very, very seriously. And one could argue, I think, more seriously than even the reformers did. Because when Christ says, this is my body, we take that to mean this is my body, not something uh, that's that's less accessible to to our reason. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, so he really does offer us a communion in his body and in his blood. And when we're talking now, after those words are spoken over the bread and wine, what is it? Is it bread? Well, no, it's what Jesus says. This is my body. Okay, obviously, we still have what appears to be bread. We have the appearances of bread. We have the taste and the touch and the feel of bread. Uh, but the witness of Christ's words, which we believe by faith, are that it is now his body. And the Catholic doctrine, you know, that comes to be labeled transubstantiation, and which some of the Protestant reformers uh, objected to quite strenuously, but the Catholic tradition is simply trying to give an accounting of that truth. Yeah, well, I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. I think the terminology will become more significant, maybe a few questions down the road in our conversation here. But you talked about how, you know, is it bread and wine anymore? No, it's not. It looks like bread, tastes like bread, feels like bread, smells like bread, etc. And so can you talk about more of the dogma in the language of accidents and substance? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the, the tradition has uh, taken up a kind of standard distinction, which if you want to learn more about, you can, you can go watch the Aquinas 101 episode about substance and accidents. It gives you a, a very good introduction. Um, but basically, it's, it's something that we all have a kind of access to, whether or not we, we have thought about the technical uh, philosophical terminology or heard that before. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, a thing or the reality, you might say the, the, the reality that is there uh, before us when we encounter something and its properties, which can change without the basic reality changing. So if you have, um, you know, a, uh, a friend who has light skin, maybe red hair or freckles and spends too much time in the sun, then, you know, your friend goes from being white to being red. And, you know, so we could talk about, uh, you know, John was white and now he is red, meaning he's sunburned. And that is an accidental change. There's some property of his that has gone away, whiteness, and another property, redness, that has come to be. Uh, but John himself is still there. And so when we're talking about any kind of change, uh, we want to try and understand what is changing. And in many cases, the changes that we talk about in the natural world that we encounter are what we would call accidental changes. The thing itself is still there, uh, but there is some property of it that has come or gone. And that, that property we're designating by the word an accident. And Father, so we talked about this a little bit on uh, one of our episodes a couple of weeks ago, but uh, if I recollect correctly, you know, St. Thomas actually says that 
the existence of these accidents, the the perseverance of these accidents in the Eucharist is actually almost kind of a mercy that God grants uh, to this uh, aspect of the Eucharist in that we're not actually having to uh, like eat the accidents of flesh and blood that we are preserved from kind of what might be the unpleasant uh, portion of that. But so we're actually, we are actually eating Christ's flesh and blood, but we uh, kind of perceive it through the accidents of, of bread and wine. Yeah, that's right. So when, I mean, when we're talking about um, the, uh, the Eucharist, when we say, you know, the substance corresponds to uh, what is it that is really there, you might say. And now I'm being a little colloquial in speaking about that. Uh, but it's, it's the, the thing that is subsisting there. And the thing that is subsisting, uh, I mean, normally we would say, what do you have? You have bread. What are the accidents of bread? It's the, the color. It's the size or the quantity. It's the location. It's the shape, the, the physical uh, shape of it. Um, it would include the taste, the smell. All of these would be characteristics of the bread. But of course, you could break the bread, and there you have divided it with respect to quantity, but you've not changed it with respect to what it is. Um, but if we were to just simply talk about, uh, you know, just stick with bread by itself, uh, not yet move into the domain of the Eucharist, what happens to the bread when you eat it? Uh, well, actually, the bread is in a certain way integrated into you. It's metabolized by your body and the nutrients in the bread you assimilate. So in a certain sense, we could say that the bread becomes a part of you. Uh, so the, the bread will cease to exist at a certain point. There is a substantial change. And uh, the not only do the accidents of bread not remain, but also the, the substance passes away. So we can, we can talk about a substantial change uh, of a thing. If you have a, a dog who dies, uh, what happens? What is there after the death of the dog? Well, you might say, well, you have the the, the corpse of a dog's body. Uh, but in fact, that is not really going to last as a, as a whole, a kind of an integral whole for very long. It begins to decompose, unfortunately. Uh, but that's what we're talking about when we say there is a substantial change. There's, uh, after the death of something, there is uh, a, a change in what is there. The dog, in a certain sense, in the fullest sense of the word, is no longer present. Um, so this distinction between substance and accidents is trying to get at the kinds of changes that we experience in the world. So in, in some changes, you have a subject that is still there and only some of its properties change, but the subject perdures through the change. Uh, in other changes, you have a change of what is there. And that's what we call a substantial change. Uh, and then when we're speaking about the Eucharist, we're talking about a very unique kind of change, a change that has no other precedent in the created world, where the substance changes. So what was previously there was bread with the accidents of bread inhering in the substance of bread. That's the way things normally work. But because of the words of Jesus, the miraculous divine power intervenes to make true what Jesus says so that this, 
this bread, which he is holding, uh, this now becomes his body. So when we say what is there, we want to ground the truth of that proposition, this is my body, in reality. And so we must really say that that reality is the body of Christ. What is miraculous uh, in this, uh, you know, in, in the, with respect to the accidents is that the accidents don't change. So the appearance of bread remains the same as it was before the consecration of the bread. And God is miraculously holding those appearances in being while the substance has completely changed from previously being bread to now being the body of Christ. And uh, so that is what the Catholic dogma refers to when it talks about transubstantiation. So one substance, the whole substance of form and matter passes over into and is changed into a new substance, Christ, the substance of Christ's body, with the accidents of bread remaining the same. So, Father, I think there are several objections to this teaching. And I would, I mean, there are actually, I guess there are many objections, but there are several that I would consider to be serious objections, even if they're wrong. And I think one of them that I'd like to talk about using what you just said as a launching point is that because the church says that there is a real absence of bread and wine because of that substantive change that you talked about, that alone contradicts reason because it's, it's um, not reasonable to think that the accidents would remain and get the substance would change. I think this is the case because of something you you said, where this is something that is totally unique in the created order. This this um, complete change of substance, where the accidents remain. And on the one hand, for the Catholic, this doesn't contradict reason because because we we have sort of developed terminology to talk about what happens, and we believe in God's ability to intervene in the created order, and we in fact believe in his his um, unique ability to sustain the created order. So it's not necessarily unreasonable, but what would you say to someone who says it's much more reasonable to think that this is not the one unique instance of this in all creation, but rather that this is, you know, language that needs to be understood metaphorically, or we need to take a sort of receptionist view where we don't need to say that anything substantive happens to the bread and wine themselves, but rather that God sort of effects the the sacrament or the sacramental change in the heart of the believer when that believer consumes the bread and wine worthily. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple things going on there uh, or, uh, you know, several different arguments uh, kind of intertwined there in what you're talking about. One is about uh, by what standard do we judge what is uh, reasonable or or rational? Uh, I mean, it's one thing to say, well, this is not a, this would be possible for God to do, but I don't think that he's actually doing it. Um, and, uh, okay, that would be one, one claim. Another would be, it, this is not possible for God to do. And therefore, it's absurd to say that he's doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, so it would depend on which position your interlocutor is taking there. So if they say, well, it's not reasonable for God to behave in this way. I mean, I think I would say, well, you know, it's not, you could make the same argument about the resurrection from the dead. You know, it's not reasonable 
uh, on that account, like it, if, if we're talking about a kind of what do we expect in the normal course of natural events, any miracle would sound like it's not reasonable on that account. I would say, actually, that's not a very good argument. Um, it, it's, not a, it, it's not really an argument about whether it's reasonable or not. I mean, the question is, uh, is it possible to God? If it, is, it, is it metaphysically possible? Uh, and if it is, then it's possible to God. And if it is possible to God, is there some reason to think that he's done it? Um, and I would say if God tells you that he's doing it, then that's a pretty good reason. So uh, the, the issue then would be, um, you know, is it, does it involve some, some kind of contradiction to believe this? Uh, maybe to think about this another way, we might ask, well, okay, if, it's, if it doesn't involve a contradiction, in other words, if it's metaphysically possible to God's power to do something like this, then we would want to ask, well, what reason do, you know, what would be the evidence for thinking that it might be happening here? And uh, that, but that's a rather different question than I think where, where your, your questioner was, was starting from. Does that make sense? It, it does, Father. I want to I be as charitable as possible towards those who disagree with me. And I, I want to practice the Thomistic principle of presenting the best form of the argument, even if they don't quite make it that way. So let me back up a little bit. And when I, I think you're right that, that what I sort of just posited to you could be broken up in those, into those two categories. Either God can't do it or God, God won't do it. Or, or rather, I should say God can't do it or that it's absurd, right? And I, I think to be most charitable towards um, towards Protestants who would who would claim this, I think the claim would be not that God can't do it, but that God um, won't do it because of the the claim of annihilation. Because I think the claim, as I understand it, is that at the moment of consecration, the the Protestant would say uh, the Catholic claims that there's something there, the substance of the bread and wine is destroyed and replaced by the body and blood of Christ. And God is a creative God. God is not a, a God who destroys what he has made. God hates nothing he has made. And so he would not enact this change that destroys the substance of the bread and wine in favor of something else. Does that make sense? I'm sure you're familiar with this argument. I, I want to make sure I've sort of captured it adequately. Yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, you know, the, uh, what, you're, what you're raising um, here is that... Um, you know, does it, does it seem to accord with the, the way that the world works, that one thing would, uh, cease to be and another, another thing, uh, would, you know, would come to be there. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you want to talk about the question of annihilation or something like that, um, this is actually something that Aquinas does, uh, take up explicitly in uh, the third part of the Summa, um, in uh, question 75, um, he's asking, you know, does the, does the substance pass over uh, or is there, is there some kind of uh, annihilation or is it rather a change? And uh, Aquinas' position is that you don't have the, the destruction of one and the coming to be of another because that would not, in fact, be a change. Uh, that would just be the ceasing of one and the beginning of another. Uh, he wants to say there is actually a 
a change, which is why we talk about transubstantiation. So there is a substantial change. Substantial changes in, in the natural world happen all, all the time around us. When you have one thing uh, go out of being as another thing comes to be from it. So, you know, this happens in the generation of a new animal. Uh, sperm and egg unite and the uh, what was there becomes a new complete organism. Neither of them was a complete organism before. Uh, and now you have now a new living organism. And at a certain point, at the end of that organism's life, that organism is going to die. And then you cease to have a living organism there, say a living dog or a living cat or a living human being. And you have now uh, what formerly was a human being or a dog or a cat, which is, uh, has turned into something else and is, you know, is decomposing into some lower forms of a, some lower substances. So we, we, we do see things, uh, being corrupted and being generated one thing coming to be from another. And Aquinas wants to say that that kind of thing, there's something like that happening in the Eucharist, that one thing is coming to be from another, uh, but it's coming to be in a very unique and singular way because we're talking about a complete passing over of the, uh, the whole of the substance of bread which becomes the whole substance of the body of Christ. And I think on that point, Father, I'm reminded of the, the words that preface the Eucharistic prayer where the, um, the priest prays, you know, fruit of the earth and work of human hands, hands may it become for us the bread of life. Um, because it is, it's this idea of transformation rather than annihilation and replacement. So if I understand you correctly, I just want to restate this back to you. Thomas says, and the church teaches that the substance of the bread and wine is not destroyed and replaced by something entirely foreign to it, but rather transformed or elevated, changed into the body and blood of Jesus. Is that correct? Yes. Now the words that we use there are actually, if we want to be technical, then I don't know that I want to say transformed or elevated, uh, except in a kind of a general sense. Right. The most technical sense would be it's that the bread is transubstantiated. Um, in other words, the bread is changed into the body of Christ. Uh, and the point is that this is a change with respect to substance. So when you have a change with respect to substance, what is there changes. And so what you say about it before the change is not what you say is not true. If you say it about it uh, after the change, when you're referring to the substance, so when you're talking about, um, I don't know, the substance of a, of a dog, if we go back to that example, uh, and you're talking about the, the moment before the dog sperm fertilizes the dog egg, can you say that what is there is a dog? No, you can't. You can't say, this is Fido. Uh, but after the fertilization, you can actually say, this is Fido. So the, you know, the, the things that we can say about uh, the thing we're pointing to change when there is a substantial change. So the kind of predication of what is there 
Now we would refer to something else as being there. Even though in a certain way we could say Fido came to be from the sperm and the egg. Uh, so the sperm and the egg really in a certain way became Fido, but the sperm and the egg are not Fido. There, something has, something has, something very significant has changed. Now, that's already on a philosophical level, substantial change is kind of mysterious. We, we uh, are, you know, when you begin thinking about substantial changes, uh, you know, a, a, a um, the generation of an animal, or you, you take a piece of wood and you burn it in the fire, and now it is no longer wood, it's ash and, you know, and smoke and energy that's been released, heat and so forth. Um, you know, so what has, what has happened there? Is there still a piece of wood there? No, you just have ash now. Uh, you, you had the, you had a substantial change. And the thing that came from that change uh, really began as wood, um, but it, it is no longer wood. So it's, uh, it's gone through uh, a, a dramatic change which is a change in the category of substance, so that what is there is now is now new. Okay, in the Eucharist, we have a change with respect to the whole substance. It's not like other substantial changes where the uh, the accidents also are going to be changing, and where uh, maybe this is uh, you know getting into another technicality. There is there is something that perdures through a change, which is the matter. Uh, in the transubstantiate, the change of transubstantiation, the whole bread is changed into the substance of the body of Christ. So the the uh, there is nothing that passes through that change except for the continuity of the accidents. Uh, so the the in this sort of miraculous circumstance, it's actually the the accidents that. Uh, give us a kind of, um, that are a kind of sign to us of the continuity from before and after. Well, and I appreciate your your corrective of my terminology because you're absolutely right. It wouldn't be correct to say transformed. I think colloquially that may, that may help people sort of understand the change that happens. But in the example that you gave, Father, the wood being burned in the fire, that would be a a change in substance, but also a change in accident and a, and a genuine transformation because the form would be different, right? But in what we're talking about now, as you said, the the accidents um, have continuity from the pre-consecration to the post-consecration, and yet the substance is transubstantiated. Yeah, that's right. So, Father, uh, in this conversation, one of the kind of themes we've been we've been or one of the words that keeps uh, being used, we talk about body and. Uh, one of the other kind of big criticisms that we come across for this uh, dogma of transubstantiation is a criticism surrounding locality. So the ability of a body or a body to be in multiple places at multiple times, it's a question that uh, St. Thomas takes up as well. But I was wondering if you could uh, kind of take us through the argument for how what is you know, this physical body of Christ it, the the form through the incarnation that he took on himself, how through this um, sacrament, you know, we can have Christ's body on an altar in, you know, Denver, Colorado, the same time it's on an altar in Washington, D.C. or the Vatican, and how 
the dogma deals with this question of locality? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and it's one that that often comes up. And I think one of the one of the key things that needs to be added to the conversation is that when we're talking about the this unique change of transubstantiation, we're talking about in the context of the sacrament of the Eucharist. So we're talking about a sacrament, and maybe that's uh, something we we haven't we should have mentioned uh, earlier. So a sacrament is uh, works in the order of a sacred sign, right? A sacrament is a sign that causes what it signifies. And it's uh, generally part of the uh, a larger way of understanding uh, the sacraments. Every sacrament can be understood in kind of a, a threefold, according to a kind of a threefold uh, division. Um, there is the sign itself that you have in the sacrament. Uh, there is something that is uh, a kind of intermediate reality be- between uh, the the sign and the ultimate spiritual effect that the sacrament is bringing about. And then there is the, the, the third thing, the, the ultimate effect, you might say. So this, the classic scholastic terminology is that you have some things that are uh, only signs. That's the first category. Some things that are both a, uh, a reality signified by that first sign and also pointing to a further reality and then you have the third category, which is something that is the the supernatural reality itself, or the reality of grace itself, you might say. So, in uh, in baptism, for example, uh, if you think about this trifold division, you have a sign, which is the pouring of water and the saying of the uh, the words, the the Trinitarian formula: "I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." Okay, that's the that's the sacramental rite. It's the exterior sign. And that is that first stage. Uh, the second stage is the, you might say, the immediate effect of that sign is a kind of spiritual change in the person who is baptized. So uh, that spiritual change is the, the uh, cleansing. It's the, the character that is imparted by the sacrament of baptism that configures you to Christ in his death and his resurrection. And then the ultimate effect is the remission of sins and the the baptismal grace that you receive from it. Okay, the same thing is happening in the Eucharist. So you do have, you start with a sign. And that's important to remember, this is a liturgical rite. Uh, It is imitating Christ, following his command, and reenacting in a certain way, or making present again the Last Supper, and also the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, so Christ's uh, Christ's own offering of his body and blood at the Last Supper under the forms of bread and wine were part and parcel, you might say, of the sacrifice he was making on Calvary the following day. So he's doing it the night before, but obviously he's referring to that sacrifice when he's saying, uh, this is my body which is given for you, uh, this is the chalice of my blood, this, the the chalice of the new and everlasting covenant, right? Um, so institute a sacrifice, instituting a new covenant. Um, this rite that Christ instituted at the Last Supper and told his apostles to repeat, that is the level of the sacramental sign. And so in that sacramental sign, you start with bread and wine. But the bread and wine are pointing to some deeper reality 
And what is that intermediate reality in the Eucharist, which is both the, the you might say, what is signified by the first level of the sign uh, and, and also then brings forth an ultimate reality in the order of grace. That intermediate reality is the real presence of Christ's body and blood. So when the priest uses the words of Jesus and takes bread and wine and imitating that right, which Jesus himself instituted a priest who's uh, validly ordained with a kind of continuity back to the apostles who received this authority from Christ himself. Okay. This is very important because we're claiming that uh, the apostles uh, and then the priest acting in virtue of their commission is able to use the divine power given to them, authorized for them to use by Jesus himself. Uh, so there needs to be a kind of direct lineage going back to Jesus and to his apostles. So when the priest says those words of Jesus with that, uh, with that power transmitted to the priest through his ordination, God brings about that what the priest says or the words of Jesus become true. And the, the what it is that is there is now, in fact, truly the body and blood of Christ. The sign, however, of bread and wine continues. So the sign is still there pointing you to that invisible reality. When you talk about uh, the location then, so this is a kind of long-winded way to get at your, at your question, Kevin. Uh, your question was about the change in place or whether, whether the body of Christ can be present in many places at one time. Well, the body of Christ is not present on the altar when a priest celebrates Mass under its, uh, under its proper dimensions, Right. The, the dimension, what are the dimensions of Christ's body? Well, we don't know exactly, but he's the size of a, of a full-grown man. Uh, so presumably he's something like, you know, he's going to be 5'10 or 5'11 or 6'2 or whatever, whatever it is, and he's going to weigh a certain amount and uh, so forth. Christ's body really has all of those accidents uh, in its natural form. So where is that body right now? It is at the right hand of the father it's in heaven. That's, that's also mysterious for us to talk about uh, that, the place of that body. But in any case, we know that, that that body is in a place because that's, that's characteristic of bodies. And it has these other, uh, these other accidental qualities or accidental uh, features like its quantity, uh, its location in, in relation to other things uh, outside of it and so forth. Uh, so spatial relation and so forth. Um, those things are not present in the Eucharist. So we are not claiming that the dimensions of Christ's body as they are in heaven are made present on the altar. We are claiming that the substance of Christ's body is present in a sacramental mode. So you have the sign which is bread and wine, the, uh, the words of consecration, which brings about the sacramental presence of Christ's body. So it's the substance of his body, uh, but not the accidents of his body, which includes uh, location in space. And therefore, 
we, we want to say that Christ does not come to be on the altar by changing place. So this is, this is sort of a, a, you know, when you, when you begin thinking this through it, well, it sort of forces you to stretch your mind a little bit because we're talking about a very unique situation where a substance is present without its other accidents while the accidents that preceded the existence of the substance in this place uh, remain there. So in what sense is the Eucharist in a place? Well, uh, when I say Mass, the bread that I bring to the altar is in the place uh, of the altar. It's sitting on top in the center of the altar. When I say the words of consecration, that bread is no longer there. It is changed into the substance of the body of Christ. But the accidents of the bread are still there. So the accidents are, as it were, containing the substance of Christ's body. Those accidents are present on this altar. So the, the accidents of place uh, or of location, its spatial relation to other things, uh, remain the same. They don't change. And Christ's body, which is in heaven, uh, it does not change according to its accidents. So the accident of its location in space uh, in heaven remains the same. But the substance of Christ's body is now present in a sacramental mode on the altar. So here's a, an analogy to think about this. Uh, if you think about a pyramid, you have the, the absolute pinnacle, the top point of the pyramid can you can you can draw a line from every point on the base of the pyramid up to that top point and they all converge there thinking about the the presence of Christ's body on all the altars of the world or all the tabernacles of the world is something like that Christ's body with its true accidents is in heaven it's like the pinnacle of the pyramid all of these pieces of bread around the world that are brought to the altar and that are then transubstantiated by the sacramental rite, uh, those accidents now are containing, as it were, the substance of Christ's body. So they are, uh, as it were, um, a kind of, op it's, it's a kind of um, presence in a sacramental mode of the substance of Christ's body without its proper accidents, you might think of it like this kind of um, ray going to the place in heaven so that Christ's body is now able to be really present uh, here on this altar under the appearances of bread and wine. I, d I know you have to go shortly uh, here, Father, and I want to be respectful of your time. So maybe you very quickly, before you go, I have one more question for you, and this is along the lines of ecumenism, and I think ecumenism is important, but what I mean by ecumenism is being clear on where and why we differ. And so in conversation with with Protestant Christians, I think it's very important that Catholics be able to understand and articulate these, these points of theology uh, and defend them. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, why is this so important for us to be so dogmatic on this? And I ask because I come from a background before I was Catholic, I was Anglican, and we had we had some sort of sacramental imagination where we could say that we take Jesus's words in John six to be true, but not necessarily literal. And so we would recognize that 
in some mystical way when we had the Eucharist, we were partaking of his body and blood. And yet we obviously rejected, as did all of the reformers virtually, um, the the Catholic beliefs on the Eucharist. So why is it so important that we make this so central to our faith and and hold the line on this against those who would say otherwise, you know, I believe in some sort of spiritual presence, but it's not real presence in the way that that you say it is. What would you say to that, Father? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we've we've gotten into some of the the uh, the precise details of the metaphysics of this change as we're talking about transubstantiation. And that's that's partly because the um, you know, there were challenges to whether we can really say that Christ is present in truth, that his body is present in truth or that the or that the bread has been changed into the body of Christ and what the church's witness to that is. So let's just go back to that. Uh, background point, like the reason we're talking about this is because Jesus said, this is my body. And St. Paul speaks about, uh, you know, if you, if you eat the bread and drink the cup without discerning the body and blood of Christ, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. In other words, St. Paul says that this is uh, one of the central uh, beliefs of the Christian community uh, it is to to do what Jesus told us to do on the night before he died. So the central, um, you know, pinnacle of his earthly life, all of the teaching and work that he'd done with his apostles culminates in that night and then his sacrifice on the cross the next day. So he he above all wants to leave this to his disciples. He tells us to do it. And when we do it, what are we supposed to think about it? And St. Paul says, you better discern the body and blood of Christ, and it, it's a matter of your salvation hangs on this. Uh, and likewise, in John chapter 6, Jesus is very clear when he says, uh, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true, true drink. Uh, and that if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Uh, okay, those are... Those are very dramatic claims, and they're kind of shocking claims to us, uh, but the Catholic Church has taken them with total seriousness and and takes Jesus at his word when he tells us to do that. But we can understand this from a biblical perspective, uh, and I think, uh, you know, a, a, maybe a broader a biblical perspective in, in viewing what Jesus is doing in view of the Passover from the Old Testament. And this is actually another great way to come at the issue, if you read in the book of Exodus about the Passover sacrifice, uh, what do you discover? You discover that there needs to be a, a lamb without blemish. It needs to be sacrificed in a particular way. The temple sacrifices that were instituted uh, that you can read about uh, also in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, uh, which were perpetuated up to the time of Jesus in the temple every year. Uh, well, actually throughout the year, but above all, on the feast of, of Passover, uh, involves the sacrifice of these animals. Uh, that means you have to slaughter the animal. You have to collect the blood. You pour the blood on the altar. You roast the meat of the animal, and then you eat the sacrifice. So if you want to share in the Passover, if you want to share in, you might say, the, the act of redemption and salvation that God is accomplishing for his people Israel, you have to eat the Passover meal. That means you have to eat the lamb. 
And this is very clearly being done throughout the Old Testament. I mean, we don't maybe think about it because we're not used to the practice of animal sacrifice. But of course, this also happened in pagan cultures. And St. Paul writes about that in the New Testament, about eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And he says, don't do it, right? Don't, don't eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Why? Because you're participating in an idolatrous sacrifice. Okay, when Jesus institutes a new covenant, so he's reformulating, refounding the old covenant, the original covenant that God made with Israel. And where was that covenant? Uh, I mean, what's kind of the pinnacle of that covenant ceremony belonging to that covenant? It's the Passover sacrifice. So when Jesus is instituting that, and he's doing it on Passover night, he gathers his 12 apostles around him, 12 of them representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and he changes the Passover sacrifice so that there is no longer a sacrifice of an animal, of a lamb, and the pouring out of the lamb's blood. Instead, there is his body and his blood. So the blood of the new covenant is no longer the blood of a lamb or of a bull. It is the blood of Christ himself. And he commands us to eat it. So if you want to share in the sacrifice of Christ, if you want to share in the redemption that he won by that sacrifice, you have to eat the sacrifice, which means you have to eat his body and drink his blood. That is what he tells us to do. And so this is why it is so important for us to be able to say, this is not a symbol. This is not bread, which we consider in some mystical sense to signify Christ's body or to communicate in some kind of purely spiritual way a grace, but that as soon as we're done with a ceremony, we treat this as ordinary bread. No, we're saying this is the sacrifice of Christ made present to us in a sacramental mode. And we, we revere it as the presence of Christ himself. And we, we eat it as giving us a true communion in his body. And of course, this is the central truth about being a Christian. Being a Christian means being a member of Christ's body, and you need to ingest his body to be a member of that body, or at least you need to be ordered to that. And the Catholic Church understands baptism always to order you to reception of the Eucharist. So baptism is what begins your configuration to Christ, and its crowning or completion takes place in the reception of the Eucharist. So that's, I mean, that's a kind of biblical way to come at the issue of like, why do we want to make such a big deal about this? I would say this is not like a, a second point or a third point. We're not like in tertiary, a tertiary zone, zone here. We're talking about the, the center of what Jesus came to accomplish and how he wants to incorporate us into our salvation. Well, with those rousing words, Father, I think we are out of time, but I would love to again encourage our listeners to check out the work of the Thomistic Institute at ThomisticInstitute.org. And if you feel so led, please go ahead and donate to the important work that they're doing. Father Leg, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Creedal Catholic. I'd love to have you back on again another time. I really enjoy learning from you and, and hearing you expound these often difficult, but obviously very central and very important things. Well, it's great being with you. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. God bless. To our listeners, thank you so much 
for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. If you want to give us feedback on this episode, let us know what you found interesting, what you disagreed with, etc. Send an email to Zach, Z-A-C, at CreedalCatholic.com or Kevin at CreedalCatholic.com. Don't forget to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And once again, thank you to our Patreon supporters, especially our most recent ones, Will and Teresa. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, God bless you.